Some people believe that Jesus' subordination to the Father during his earthly ministry means that Jesus isn't divine or equal with God. Today we're going to examine these claims very closely and see what scripture really has to say on this issue. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. This is the Dance of Life podcast and my name is Tudor Alexander. Thanks so much for being with me. As always, pleasure to be with you and to discuss such important things in this day and age where deception is all over the place, whether it's end times, whether it's theology, whether it's all sorts of things, people are being deceived left and right. And one of my missions with this channel and the things that I create are really to help you not be deceived because I was very deceived. I was very deceived in a lot of different ways, one of them being that I was very much into new age, personal growth things before I came to Christ, very much wanted to do life on my own terms. And so we are each deceived in our own ways. And even after we come to the Lord, or I should say rather until after he opens our eyes, there are still so many deceptions. When I first came to Jesus and I believed, I genuinely believed, I was back in a couple years ago, 2021, at the time of this video, I remember running into some really serious deceivers who were teaching all sorts of things. And because I wasn't strong in the word, because I didn't have experience, I didn't even read the Bible, I didn't know much about the Bible, it really threw me for a spin. And that motivated me. It motivated me to learn more about the Bible, to, to see what did God actually say, to study, to show yourself approved. And so we must do this all the time. We must learn. Now, you may not have the time to learn as much or you know you, maybe you don't you don't feel called to teach others or to help others and that's okay it doesn't not everybody is called to do that certainly i didn't expect to be doing what i'm doing now through this youtube channel and through my substack and through my blog all the things that i'm doing i never once expected that and that's part of god's sovereign plan over your life is that you can't predict what god is going to do and that's a good thing but either way we should always study to show ourselves approved we should know what God has said because he's the most important being in the universe. So what he says is the most important. And we should be very familiar with what other people say about what he says. Because the devil uses scripture to twist it for his agenda. When the, when the devil tempted Christ in the desert, how did he do it? Well, if you know the account, he used the word of God to tempt Christ. He didn't do anything of his own accord necessarily. He used the authority, which is God, and twisted the words of the authority to suit his agenda. And today we are living in a time where this is more and more common with all sorts of theories and teachings of men on established doctrine from God. One of those doctrines, which is very important and which is very contested, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Because without the Trinity, you have serious problems understanding the nature of God, understanding the atonement. In fact, you don't have an atonement. You don't have a gospel without a Trinity, Trinitarian view of the gospel. And so we have been studying this topic for quite a few episodes now, in the last maybe nine or ten episodes. And so I invite you, if this is your first time coming in to go and watch those previous episodes because this is a series. It's a cumulative type of thing, and obviously it builds off the previous. But 
Today we're talking about Jesus' subordination. Now what that means is basically Jesus' show of subordination and humility and subordinating to the Father, following the Father's orders basically in his earthly life, all of the places where we see that. And there are quite a few, and I'll cite them today and we'll look at them. But this altogether is what we mean when we say subordination of Jesus. He was subordinate. He was subordinate to the Father when he was doing his ministry. Very much so. But the question is, does this subordination reveal some sort of ontological truth? Meaning, does the subordination of Jesus in his earthly life mean that he is always subordinate to the Father in the same way, even before time and after his ascension? Is that what we're to make of this? Or is there another purpose for the earthly subordination? Because if Jesus is subordinate to the Father from all time, and even after his ascension, where he's basically crowned with all authority and power and rule, where he fulfilled Daniel 7, if that's the case, then his ontology, meaning his nature of being, has to change. Jesus can no longer be God, can no longer be equal with God. He, he has to be different in some way if he's eternally subordinate. Temporary volitional, meaning chosen, subordination does not change Jesus' ontology. It's a free choice, and it's temporary. But if it's eternal, it's part of his nature. It's part of his identity and who he is, which is contrary to the Trinity, and which is, again, contrary to many of the things we, we looked at, because we looked at, for example, in Revelation 1, verse 17 through 18, where Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Only Yahweh says that in the Old Testament. We looked at John 1. We looked at 2 Peter 1, verse 1, where Peter calls Jesus God and Savior. Again, if you disagree with these things, go, go check out those previous episodes, because a lot of people have so many theories concerning the divinity of Jesus and somehow he's different from the Father or maybe he's not divine at all. So there's a lot of theories out there, but none of them align with Scripture. They really don't. Because Jesus testified of himself as God. He received worship. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation. The apostles believed he was God. Peter, John, Paul... All of them believed that he was God, very much very much clearly so. Now, we also looked at the Son of Man and the Son of God, how both of those point to Jesus' divinity, not his lack thereof, in the sense that they, they point to the opposite of what people are arguing. People are arguing that Jesus is the Son of Man or the Son of God, which are both important titles that he uses, more so the Son of Man. They argue that this basically says, well, see, Jesus isn't divine. In fact, if you really examine these titles like we did in the previous couple of episodes, you realize that they point to his divinity. It's the opposite of what they're arguing. They reinforce his divinity, which as a result then reinforces the Trinity. Because if you have Jesus as God and the Father as God, we know the Holy Spirit is God, you have to have a Trinity. And the last episode we looked at was the eternal sonship. And we had to set that up in order to discuss what we're discussing today. Jesus was always the son of God. From eternity since today, he's always been the son of God. He always will be. And again, what does son of God mean? Well, go back to that previous episode on the son of God. 
because the Son of God is a title of divinity. It doesn't mean he's less than God. It actually means he's equal with God, and he is God, which you can only understand from a Trinitarian perspective. So today we're going to unpack this claim that Jesus' subordination during his earthly life is somehow indicative of a quality of his nature in eternity. Because that's a very significant claim. Because if we accept eternal subordination, then that inadvertently and automatically changes Jesus' nature. Do you see how that works? If it's temporary, not a big problem. But if he's eternally subordinate, then he is less of a being than God the Father. And that is not true. It's not what the testimony of Scripture says. Again, if you disagree with that, go watch the previous episodes, please, and check them out. Indulge me. Don't resist this idea because it's the, it's the only logical point of ending that the Bible pushes you into. Nobody understands the Trinity fully. It's a model. It's a model to understand what the Bible has shown us about the nature of God being a one being existing in three persons. We have no way to understand that fully. We can understand it through shadows, and we looked at that in the first episode with complex unity and things like that, but we can't understand it fully. And that's part of marveling at God. Do you really think you could understand God's nature completely? The, the creator of heaven and earth who is outside of time and space? Absolutely not. So we should not think ourselves so wise. But today we're going to be looking at the major proof texts that people bring up for Jesus' subordination and say, see, look, Jesus was subordinate, therefore he must be less divine or not divine or whatever else. And we're going to look at those today, the major verses. Now, there are probably some verses that I left out. I don't know. I, I tried to gather all of them that I saw in this debate, the major ones. And again, if you find other ones that aren't listed in this episode, then you know, just use proper context and hermeneutics and, and the things that we talk about today, these principles, to interpret them, because the Bible is consistent. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. But I want to read you a, an article, because this anti-Trinitarianism is very popular, and it has come out of, not entirely, but it has come out in part from Adventism. Now, again, I'm not an Adventist. I don't support Adventism. I'm not in support of any denomination, true biblical Christianity is non-denominational. However, Adventism, again, I have nothing against them, but Adventism has given rise to anti-Trinitarianism. And there are a lot of people on the internet who follow these types of preachers and their teachings. Adventists aren't exclusively anti-Trinitarianism because there are Trinitarian Adventists. I'm not bashing Adventists. I'm just saying this is part of where this has come from. And that's why I'm going to read you an article from an Adventist reviewing these movements because they sum up the entire position of anti-Trinitarianism. So you can get an idea of what we're really dealing with here and whether it is consistent with the Word of God. So let's check out this article. Okay, this is from Adventist Review, and it's called Adventist Anti-Trinitarianism in Alexandrian Theology. Now, if you know what that means, this is referring to Alexandria, like in the 
early part of the church where there were a lot of heresies coming out of Alexandria. Alexandria was the seat of the occult, so it's not a surprise. Okay, so again, I'm going to read this to you, and it'll give you an idea of where people are coming from with this whole eternal subordination thing. Within two days of my arrival in town, a packet containing materials compiled by the latter group arrived at my door, soon followed by the distressed head elder. With my head still spinning from my recent intercontinental move, this is the author of this article, obviously, I took time to carefully review the materials that had arrived at my door. Eternal subordination. The main idea of these materials was that the Bible stated that Christ exists in subordination to God the Father. Not only was he while here on earth subordinate, but so always was he subordinate and always will be through eternity past and eternity future. Moreover, Christ owed his existence to the Father in whose life he partook. Furthermore, 2nd and 3rd century AD Trinitarian developments represent the Catholic Church's departure from the clear teachings of Scripture and the introduction of pagan ideas into Christianity. Adoption of Trinitarianism around the turn of the 20th century imperiled the Adventist Church and made it vulnerable to further intrusion of heretical doctrines, such as, for example, Sunday worship, well, this is true, and ecumenism, also true. So you see, so far, I'm just going to take a break. So you see how there's so far like a mix of truth and error. The Catholic Church did not invent the Trinity. And we talked about this in the first episode. Trinity is not pagan. We also talked about this in the first episode as well. There, there is no pagan religion or group of people in the history of the world that ever believed in one being existing in three persons of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No, none, not a single time. You cannot take Egyptian triads like Isis, Horus, and um, and Set, I believe. I might be getting that wrong, but one of, the, one of the three I may be getting wrong. But either way, like the Egyptians had a triad of gods. Other pagans had triads of gods, but those are three gods. This is the thing people don't get. The Trinity is not pagan. It's unique to the revelation of Scripture, of who Yahweh, the, the true God, the only God, of who he is. Very interesting. But people mix it up with truth. Like, oh, you see, the Catholics brought in the Sunday worship and ecumenism and transubstantiation. Yes, all true. Talk about that in my end time series. So, they, so therefore, everything must be wrong. You know, the Trinity must be pagan too. No, that's not a logical conclusion. Poor argumentation. Moving on, the only hope for Adventists was to return to the ideas of the pioneers who clearly supported the doctrine of subordination. Uh-oh, did you know, Adventists, that the founders of Adventism were not basically in support of the Trinity? The authors of these more recent anti-Trinitarian pamphlets do not actually advocate for a return to early Christian, to Adventist Christological thinking where Christ was considered by many, but an elevated creature who differed quantitatively rather than qualitatively from all the other creatures. Gosh, that sounds like Mormonism, doesn't it? It was established right around that time, too. Very interesting. Uriah Smith, for example, unequivocally held that Christ was, quote, the first created being, far back before any other created being or thing. Oh, so there you go. So he just created a long, long time ago. You cannot have an atonement if Jesus is created in any way. It doesn't matter how glorious of a being. If he's created, you can't have atonement the way it's supposed to function. 
Current pamphlets affirm a more refined position in which, rather than being created, Christ was generated or begotten by God the Father in eternity past, with beginning so far back in eternity that for all practical purposes, he could be considered eternal, though not co-equal. Now, look, I'll, I'll take another break here really quick. We talked about <clears throat> begotten and what that means. The writer of Hebrews appropriates Psalm 2, where it says, Today have got, I've begotten you, in Psalm 2, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews appropriates that line to the appointment of a priest. Christ was begotten means he was appointed. He is the, the only mediator between God and man. The only one that was appointed to do the atonement, to be the high priest, to be the king. He's the appointed one. He's the Messiah. Appointment, anointed, Messiah, chosen one, the Son of God. It's all one reality. Begotten doesn't mean he was created. So anybody who's teaching you that is wrong. Quite simply, very wrong. Other Adventist thinkers around the time of the Minneapolis General Conference in 1888, such as Wagner and Jones, held similar positions. Though still a clear shift removed from the earliest Adventist thinking on the Godhead. It's important to know your history, folks. The Alexandrian school. Arguments so eloquently defending the idea of Christ's generation, his co-eternity, but not co-equality, do not differ significantly from the teachings of the Alexandrian school of theology that flourished during the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. Not all positions of Alexandrian and modern Adventist anti-Trinitarianism overlap, the latter being more scripturally based than the former. So they're still heretics, but not as bad. But the two appear to be in essential agreement on the origin and function of Christ. Clement of Alexandria and Origen, the principal thinkers of the Alexandrian school, were both strongly influenced by Greek philosophy, which they saw as their natural ally in combating the paganism of the day. Isn't that ironic? They saw Greek philosophy combating paganism, where they're practically the same thing. The subordinationist views were in general agreement with other Christian thinkers of the post-New Testament era, and viewed as more compatible with the monotheism of the Old Testament. Also, their positions resembled Greek thinking on the deity and its mediator, Logos, thus making Christianity intelligible to the pagan audience. Evangelistic desire significantly influenced the conclusions of Clement and Origen. So they were trying to do what? Another break seems like it's called for here. They were being seeker-sensitive. Do you realize that? The same thing that people are doing today with the seeker-sensitive church and the purpose-driven church. And, you know, all these things were, well, let's, how can we, you know, like the message Bible, the passion translation, it's nothing different, man. It's been going on for a long time. People, I should say, being influenced by the wrong spirit have been twisting the word of God to suit their agenda. And they may be deceived into thinking this was a good thing. We need, like people today that are Christian uh, Zionists or Christian dominionists, Christian nationalists, where they fuse a political outcome with Christianity, especially Christian nationalists. Like, oh, we need to Christianize the world, the seven mountain mandate. If you know anything about that, I talk considerably about that in my end time series. You know who sits on seven hills and who gave the mandate for everybody to unite with, uh, to unite church and state. 
So these things are evil, but people believe that we have to Christianize the world. And so, of course, we, you know, back then with Constantine and all these Greeks that were coming in, how can we Christianize people? Well, let's make it a little more, you know, appealing and make, make the message a little more, you know, consistent with, you know, monotheism of the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament was a type and shadow of the reality that was revealed in Christ. And if we're going to go by the Old Testament, in fact, the next couple episodes in this series will be about Jesus in the Old Testament with the angel of the Lord as a prime example. So even from the Old Testament, you have a complex unity within God that can't be denied because God is triune. And we'll talk about that in a future episode. But again, this has been going on for a very long time. The seeker-sensitive approach, twisting scripture, instead of just taking it as it is. Let's continue. These Alexandrian thinkers both centered their teaching on the affirmation of the absolute oneness and transcendence of God and the need of a mediator. This mediator, the Logos, was the source of all knowledge of God to humanity. Pretty words, but again, if Jesus isn't God, you have a real problem. Clement and Origen spoke very highly of the Logos, pointing to his sinlessness and blamelessness and calling him the wisdom of God, cause of all good things, and God in the form of man. Despite such exalted language, the Alexandrian thinkers hesitated to ascribe to the Logos the supreme, underived divinity that would make him equal with God. The matter of the Logos' origin was in question. In eternity past, the Alexandrians claimed, the Logos issued forth or emanated or generated from the Father. This is still, by the way, an Eastern Orthodox understanding. And we're going to look at that at the end of this series because it's wrong. With Origen explaining the relationship between Father and Son in terms of eternal generation. This is nowhere in the Bible, by the way. This allowed him to speak unabashedly of Christ as sharing co-eternal existence with the Father and thus participating in his nature without making the former co-equal with God. Following the first stage of his existence, when the Logos was with God, Christ became incarnate in the human form of Jesus. So again, it's just Greek philosophy. If you know anything about philosophy, it's not compatible with theology. A lot of people today use philosophy when they should be studying the Bible. Philosophy will just get you nowhere. It's just empty, pretty words that you get lost in concepts and ideas that have no grounding and meaning in reality whatsoever. Subordination and salvation. The life of Christ as the incarnate Logos was a continuation of his perfect union with God. While on earth, Christ mediated the knowledge of God and through his example showed humanity a way to obtain salvation. The way to please God and obtain salvation was through imitating Christ's perfect obedience on the earth and reaching the stage of perfect sinlessness. As such, neither Clement nor Origen left much room for Christ's death on the cross, focusing instead on his human achievements, promoting deification or becoming God-like, equivalent to sanctification, as the mode of salvation. Orthodox still believe this, by the way, and it's just, there's so many things wrong with it. For both of them, salvation was the responsibility of the individual believers. There you go. This is what it all boils down to. This is a works-based salvation. Who being completely free and having the inborn ability to choose between good and evil, nope, were exhorted by Christ and the Holy Spirit to go through the stages of sanctification until they were made perfect. My gosh, another break. I have to. I just have to. 
this is a huge lie that practically every denomination shares. There's very few. There's some Reformed Baptists who still are monergistic. But the greater part of the world in the Christian world is synergistic, meaning you got to do something. Sure, Jesus died for your sins and, you know, kind of that forgives, but you still have to choose to have faith. You still have to come to Christ because you can choose between good and evil. This is the lie from the Garden of Eden, folks, and I can break it down to you very simply. The assumption is that you can choose without influence, which is not true. Both neither the Bible teaches that nor science teaches that. But if you can choose without influence, it means you can choose the good because I can choose between good and evil equally. I'm not under any influence. I have a free, autonomous will, and I can choose equally between these two things, good or evil. It's my choice. Okay. Well, what does that mean? That means that you can govern yourself. That's why it's all on you. Look at the personal growth movement. Look at all these workspace religions. You got to do it. You got to go through the sacraments. You got to, like they do, like we just read, like you have to go through the stages of sanctification. Christ is saying, you know, okay, I died for you, but it's all on you now. You got to do this. Is that what the gospel teaches? Is that the good news? Is that really the good news of the gospel? Hey, here's some work to do. No. <laughs> the good news of the gospel is it's done. Jesus did the work. He's perfect. Accept it on your behalf and you're saved. That's the good news. And when you do, you get a new spirit. You get a new heart, which is capable of choosing the good. But you don't choose the good because of something inherent in you. You choose the good because the will of God is working through you. You do good works because you're saved. And of course, you are preserved because the Holy Spirit that you are given is God's guarantee of your inheritance with Christ. God doesn't change his mind. Very, very different message. But you see, all these works-based religions like Eastern Orthodoxy, they were coming from Greek philosophy and the Greek pagans that converted, like Origen. These, are, these were Greeks that basically converted to Christianity and they were very influenced by pagan ideas and Gnosticism. Gnosticism is synergistic. Everything other than the gospel is synergistic. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, paganism, whatever kind of ism, Satanism, it's all synergistic, meaning you have to do something to become like God, to you know, be saved in some way, to reconcile your, your life. But you can't. You're not in control of anything. You're not in control of anything significant. You can't choose free of influence. That's what the Bible says. You're dead in your sins. And so you need a savior to intervene on your behalf. Completely contradictory. And this was very early on in the church. And pretty soon you had the church-state union with Constantine and the Catholic system was born out of these ideas. It's a workspace counterfeit of the true gospel of the true kingdom of God. But let's continue. We still have a little bit more. Alexandrian theological infatuation with Greek philosophy not only resulted in subordinationist tendencies, of course, because you have to, if you're a synergist, but was followed by an even more sinister outcome related to soteriology, a fact that provokes several crucial questions. Soteriology is salvation. Was it coincidental that the Alexandrian thinkers were subordinationists who believed in sanctification as the mode of salvation? meaning works-based way of being saved? Or was subordination an integral part of their Christology, where the chief emphasis was on the earthly achievements of the man 
Christ. Would that be the primary reason why the Alexandrian writings, in the, in the Alexandrian writings, the cross is de-emphasized in favor of perfect sanctification? So it's less about the cross that they wrote and, and God's perfect work through Jesus that basically takes care of the job and more about, well, this is what you need to do to be saved. Very, very different. And if you follow the trace of history, this has always been the case through Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, even the Founding Fathers. They always focused on the works that you need to do to be like Jesus, rather than focusing on the cross and why the cross is necessary and accepting the cross and having faith in the cross, the work of the cross. So, so important to understand these things. Implications. Let's see. How does this relate to modern Adventist anti-Trinitarians? And really any anti-Trinitarians. It's not just Adventist anti-Trinitarians. As stated above, very few contemporary Adventist and anti-Trinitarians would agree with Uriah Smith, though they share his view of Christ as less than equal with the Father. The Alexandrian concept of generation as a solution of the issue of Christ's origins classifies modern Adventist anti-Trinitarians with ancient Alexandrian thinkers as subordinationists, or to use their own term, fountainarians, as in God the Father is the fountain from which all other life flows. Except the Bible says that that's also the case of Jesus. So anyway, does their subordinationism slash fountainarianism have any effect on their soteriology, meaning how, how do we get saved? This is what it boils down to. A careful study of anti-Trinitarian Adventist literature, mostly self-published, reveals an inter interesting trend. The centerpiece of their soteriology appears to be the life of Christ on earth and the example he provided for believers. There you go. It's all about his example and matching his example so you can be sanctified and be saved. Not the gospel of grace. While the death of Christ on the cross and its implications <clears throat> excuse me, are occasionally referred to, these writers focus mainly on Christ's accomplishments on earth and his subordination to God the Father. Following his example, believers may and indeed are required, some anti-Trinitarians would insist, to strive towards a life of sinless perfection. Well, good luck, because you're going to be sinning until you get a new body from Christ. This is not to say that as Christians we should not follow Christ's example or avail ourselves to his power to lead godly lives, of course. However, it becomes problematic if sanctification, rather than Christ's sacrificial death on the cross alone, comes to be seen as the means or ground of salvation. Such soteriology can be traced back to the pre-Nicene teachings of the early church fathers, particularly those connected with the Alexandrian school of theology and ultimately to Greek philosophy. Exactly. It's all about the infiltration of the true church, the gospel, the people of God, with counterfeits, counterfeit teachings, counterfeit institutions, counterfeit beliefs, a counterfeit gospel. And this is why this is so important. I have not yet seen any anti-Trinitarian, Unitarians, however you want to call yourself, Fountainarians. You reject the divinity of Christ. You reject the Godhood of Christ. And what that means for your salvation is very, very important. This is what's at stake. This is not splitting hairs over 
theological minutiae. This is a core understanding of the gospel. Jesus has to be God in order to forgive sins and to be of infinite value in his sacrifice. Because if he's created, he has a limited value. Even if that value, let's say on a number scale, was like 100 quadrillion, think about that for a second. That value would run out. That bank account would run out in eternity. You and I have been given eternal life. Those who who persevere will be saved. And you'll persevere because God is persevering you. So that's the test of who God's chosen really are. Because there's many false converts and false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing. But nonetheless, we are given eternal life, meaning we are we are with God forever and ever and ever, millions and millions and millions of years. For you to have eternal life forever requires an infinitely valuable sacrifice that can atone for your life and be the foundation for your life. That cannot happen with a created being. It just can't, simply cannot. God is not going to give a created being all authority, all rule, and power. A created being doesn't say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Do you see the problem with this heresy? It's a heresy, really, because you're denying the truth of Scripture, and and in doing so, you're leading people into a false gospel. What does the Bible say about that? It says, you are cursed, so repent if you're teaching these things, If you listen to people teaching these things, realize that they are deceiving you because they themselves are very deceived. They know not the word of God. The Bible teaches clearly that Jesus is God, that is equal with God, and that there are three persons. There's no other way to reconcile that other than the Trinity. And we looked at that over and over again through many things. But the immediate response to this whole subordination thing, so now you have an idea It's a little bit longer article, but now you have an idea of what this position believes. And importantly, where does it come from? These ideas aren't new. What does the Bible say? Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. One of my favorite verses ever, because the devil will always be predictable. There's nothing new that the devil does. He's always going to attack the divinity of Christ. He's always going to attack the legitimacy of God's words. It's the same, or he will take God's words and invert them, or he'll mix them with half-truths. Like, oh, you see, the Catholics are the beast. Yes, that's true. Catholicism is the beast that was prophesied in Revelation and Daniel. So does that mean that the Trinity is made up by the Catholics? No, that's a false assumption. You can't connect the two. The Trinity is a revelation of the Bible, that God is tripersonal. So the immediate response to this that's very important to understand is that Christ's subordination was volitional, meaning he chose to be subordinate. Hebrews 5, verse 7 through 10 outlines it pretty well. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he who was heard because of his reverence. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
You can't obey a created being. You have to obey God. Being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, designated and begotten. They're referring to the same thing. It's Jesus' appointment. Appointment to be the mediator, the high priest, the king, the incarnation of God. Doesn't mean that he's any less than God. He is God. He's God incarnate. But he learned obedience is what this passage is telling you. Jesus learned obedience. He chose obedience. Remember the Trinitarian necessity for a gospel. The Father gave sheep, i.e. the elect, to Jesus. Jesus received those sheep as a gift from the Father that he's not going to lose, which is another reason why you can't lose your salvation and why synergism is wrong and all these people that I just outlined are wrong because they're not preaching the gospel. God's work cannot be frustrated. You're not going to make Jesus look bad by making him lose one of the sheep that Father gave to him. That's preposterous. God's sovereign power will keep you saved. And this is the good news. That's the good news. doesn't mean you have a license to sin. It just means it's not up to you whether you persevere or not. You've given, you're given things to do and you're, you're told to embrace the gift you've been given. But in the end, you have the encouragement that God is working through you. Such a hard concept to get for most people. I don't know why it is, but it's because we live in this Luciferian lie world where everybody's obsessed with free will. But the only being that has libertarian free will is God. He's the only one who technically can choose outside of any influence. You ever think about that? He's the only one that lives outside of time and space. This is the inversion from the Garden of Eden. Satan knows. Satan knows that God has libertarian free will. And his deception is that, hey, you can have that too. You can choose between good and evil. You can govern yourself. You don't need God. If you can choose between good and evil, why do you need God? Do you see the point? This is the lie from the from the devil from the Garden of Eden. But nonetheless, God as a triune being has libertarian free will. The Father freely chose unconditionally to give certain people to Christ to save that would worship him forever. Christ unconditionally freely chose to enter reality on behalf of those people to redeem them, and to give them eternal life. It was all about Christ's choice. Christ chose to be the humble servant, and reality was created as a result. Colossians 1.18, it was created for him and through him. Everything points to Christ. You can't do that with a created being. The, the person who created reality cannot themselves be created. So you can't make up something that the Bible doesn't say. You can't say, well... Jesus created reality, but, you know, at some point beyond that, at some point far in eternity, he was created too by the Father. Like, the Bible doesn't ever say that or even suggest it remotely. But people trying to make up their own teachings to sit their itching ears that want to put God in a box, then yeah, sure, you can make up all kinds of things. Adventists, unfortunately, are synergists, and they're not alone. There's a lot of people that are synergists, just like Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and Judaism and Islam. This is why non-denominational Christianity is the true way. It's the narrow road. Adventists, I'm sorry to say you have so much right about end times views, but you don't realize that you are one of the harlots that have retained some things from the mother harlot. 
the mother harlot, yeah, she's all over the place with transubstantiation and things like that that many Protestants have rejected. Unless you're Lutheran, but I digress. But Adventists, sure, you reject the Sunday law, you, you reject the Sunday Sabbath, but you're synergists just like Catholics. Ultimately, Adventism is synergistic. You embrace free will, and if you have to, if you can lose your salvation, that means you have to work to maintain your salvation. Don't even get me started on the investigative judgment and how horrible of a doctrine that is for your peace of mind and for your understanding of Christ and the plan of salvation. Completely blasphemous and heretical because you're a synergistic faith and you've abandoned the monergistic teaching of the gospel. This is why synergism in practice always leads to legalism and works-based type of religions. And you cannot, I should put it this way, you can't avoid legalism if you denounce the divinity of Christ. See how they're related? If Christ isn't God and atoned for you perfectly, and, and you have a Trinitarian view of the gospel, like we outlined in, I believe, second or third episode in the series, then you're stuck with his works and trying to emulate his works to be like him, which leads to legalism, which is exactly what Christ came to destroy, and he did destroy. But nonetheless, there are false teachings. So let's jump into some of these verses. There are a few verses that are very popular that people use to teach subordination. And we're going to, again, I, I don't know if these are all of them, but I chose pretty much the main ones. So if you find something that's not on here, feel free to leave it in the comments or simply to just interpret it wisely and use context because everybody who interprets these following verses to teach subordination does so without context. So let's jump to the first one, which is John 14, 28. Okay, this is a pretty pretty common one that people use. And he says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. But because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So he says that the Father is greater than I. And what does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus is lesser than the Father? Well, let's take a look. He didn't say that God is greater than I. He just says the Father is greater than I. And remember a very important understanding, which is economy versus ontology. When you confuse these two things, you run into serious error. There are different economies in the Trinity. There are things that the Father does, and there are things that the Son does. They're separate persons. However, they have the same ontology. They are both God. If we don't understand that fully, good, because you're not supposed to understand that fully. But let's look at a couple of counter examples and see what scripture can provide some insight into what this actually means. In Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus's earthly ministry, he was in what? The form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. We're going to look at the next verse later in this um, episode where he says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men. Very important. This, this idea of emptying himself, he did not empty himself of divinity. He emptied himself of glory. Very, very important. Hebrews 2, verse 6 through 9. The founder of salvation. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for who for a little while, again, the, the timestamp of a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Does this say anything about a eternal subordinate type of situation? Or does it say for a little while? For a little while he was made lower than the angels. And remember that that was Jesus' choice. That was his free will choice to do that. And he chose it for the good on our behalf. And praise the Lord for that. Philippians 2, back in Philippians, a little earlier... We, we looked at these verses, but number eight says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, being found in human form doesn't mean he was just a human being. He was made in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Christ's obedience was volitional, meaning it was willful, it was his choice to be obedient. It's not part of his nature or character, eternal character. Remember John also 17 verse 5 where he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is the glory that was emptied in Philippians 2. Jesus was always preexistent, he was always around. He was full of glory. He chose to abandon and put aside that glory for a little while so that he might humble himself and redeem the people the Father had given him. After that ministry was over and he ascended, he went back to his former glory and he assumed authority and rule over all things. You don't do that with a created being. It's impossible. So, conclusion on this, John 14, 28, it's not about ontology and economy. And this is important. You have to really commit these words to memory and what they mean. Ontology is the nature of being. Economy is what happens, actions, rules, uh, not rules, but uh, duties, roles. That's what I wanted to say. During his earthly life, Christ volitionally, willfully, freely chose to be subordinate to the Father. Why? Because he was obeying the law so that we could have an example of what we were going to be conformed to. He's the perfect example. Yes, it's true. He is the perfect example. Look to Jesus. What would Jesus do, right? But that doesn't mean that it's up to you to do something to be saved, to be like him. The Bible says that you're being conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus. So he set the template. 
And he also had to be a humble human servant for the sake of propitiation, to be made in the likeness of man and sinful flesh and yet be innocent so that God could punish flesh, could punish sin in the flesh, and that could be the propitiation to all mankind. Very, again, incarnate, the people who deny these things, they don't have an understanding of the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, and they don't have an understanding of the mystery of the Trinity. These are mysteries. And if you're not comfortable with mysteries, and you think like an engineer with these things, you're going to run into some serious problems. You really will. But let's move to the next one. This is John, a little earlier in John, in chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he says, I can do nothing on my own. Does that mean that he's less than God? He's just a follower? He doesn't, you know, he's, he's just basically subordinate. He's eternally subordinate to the Father, because he said in one line, I can do nothing on my own. Or is this a revelation of the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, where it was God and man unified perfectly in one person, Jesus Christ? So this is the same that we just covered, which is basically, again, it's not talking about ontology, but economy. If you understand why Jesus became subordinate in the first place, which is what I just listed, for propitiation, and to be a model for us. Now, there's other reasons too, very importantly, too, if you do a whole study on this, which is to redeem the, the name of God to the glory of God because God had passed over former sins. That's in Romans. So Christ came to redeem, to be the sacrifice that would basically prove that God is just. All those times when he forgave people and he was very merciful, how can the perfect judge of the universe be forgiving? This is the major problem that the Bible solves. It's actually the, the fundamental reason why Christ became incarnate. But there are other reasons too, like we just said, to, to, to demonstrate, to be a model of what we're being conformed to, to give us eternal life, uh, to be the propitiation so that we could be brothers and sisters with one another, and he could be basically the firstborn among that. Now, again, firstborn, we looked at that in previous episodes. Firstborn doesn't mean created. It just means a title of preeminence. But God united all people to himself through Jesus. It's really phenomenal how it works, but it only works, I should say, in your mind, because it works regardless of whether it works in your mind. But in your mind, it only works if you understand that the incarnation is a mystery, that Jesus was God, fully God, and fully man just like the church has agreed on for the last almost 2,000 years. That's not a heresy. Heresies were the ones that confused these things and denied these things. Two natures, one person. Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century. Very, very important. So again, if you understand why he came, then subordination, temporary subordination, makes sense. It's not a reflection of his, he, of his eternal nature. It's a reflection of the reason why he came to be on earth in the first place. Very important. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. That was necessary so that we had a model. God sending Jesus and Jesus agreeing to be incarnate, to be sacrificed for the people that God the Father gave him, doesn't show 
an eternal subordination. In fact, it just shows that there's econ economical duties and responsibilities within the Godhead. God the Father sends Jesus. Jesus agrees to be sent. It's, it's a cooperation. The Holy Spirit agrees to support this through the conforming of the believers, through you know regenerating human hearts. It's a Trinitarian gospel. God is one being, but of course, God never acts discordantly with its himself. I'm trying to choose my words here. My goodness. God never acts in disharmony with himself. What the Father chooses, the Son freely chooses as well, and so does the Holy Spirit. Again, we don't have very good ways to understand this because we don't have a, you know, we don't have that in our life. We don't have three persons in one you know, even within a marriage, you know, you're not always going to choose the same thing. Your will isn't going to be one. You're not going to be that united. You'll be so many differences. Well, with God, it's different. God is perfect. And so the will of the Father is the will of the Son, the will of the Holy Spirit. They're all in one mind together on everything that they do. But nevertheless, it's still a freely chosen thing that Christ came here. And so what this really shows when Christ says, I can do nothing on my own, is that there is an economy about how this ministry is about to work. Christ agreed to be subordinate so that he would fulfill these things, and that agreement comes with not being able to do things on his own during the earthly ministry. That was part of the agreement. It was an agreement. It doesn't prove that Jesus is eternally subordinate to the Father. It proves that there's an economical role going on having to do with the ministry of, of Jesus. If that makes sense, hopefully it does. Because later you'll see in the episodes on the Old Testament that the angel of the Lord, angel again is messenger. Angel just means messenger, malach. So the messenger of the Lord, which is really God, the angel of the Lord is called God. He receives worship. He takes credit for God's actions. And yet he speaks in the third person of God as well. So there's constantly changing perspectives. Well, how do you make sense of that if you don't have a trinity? The Jews had a two powers in heaven theory, which they conveniently called a heresy after Christianity started taking root. So the Jews already were thinking there's multi. God was multipersonal somehow. He had to be. Because you had the angel of the Lord and you had Yahweh, just Yahweh that was in heaven. How does that work? Well, it works if you realize that God is multipersonal. But again, you see with the angel of the Lord, we'll talk much more in depth about this. The angel of the Lord was following orders and commands from the Father. Like when, when the angel of the Lord was told to destroy and wreak havoc and then he was told to stop, that was a agreed upon thing. That wasn't eternal subordination. That was showing economy. One person is in charge of one part, one person is in charge of another. It doesn't change their ontology. Again, husband and wife. We can agree that, you know, one person is in charge of one thing, you're in charge of another thing. It doesn't make you any less of a human being. It doesn't make you any less part of this family. That's a shadow of the truth, which is much more sublime and, and supreme and profound. 
which is a tripersonal God. So these types of economical things where Jesus is saying, I, can't do no, I can do nothing of my own accord, first and foremost, it's relating to his ministry, not his ontology. And second, you have to remember economy, the importance of having roles and responsibilities. They don't change your ontology. In fact, we get into trouble with this even, even in our own culture, right? Like we look at, for example, a stay-at-home mom as kind of a lesser human being. Oh, you're you're staying at home. Why aren't you a you know a boss babe going out there and making the bucks? You're you're less of a human being if you're staying at home. Meaning the things that you do, your economy makes you less of a human being, which is it doesn't follow. Well, the same is with Christ, even more so. Just because he says, I do nothing of my own accord doesn't mean that it changes his ontology. And if you can't hold those two concepts in your mind, you're going to stumble over this stuff over and over again. But again, it's not about ontology. Next one is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. It's kind of about the end times. And he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So what is this talking about? Is this talking about the, the Son, the eternal Son, being subjected to the Father, meaning he's eternally subordinate? Well, what is, what is the context for this? Well, the context is the end times. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He, when he comes to the end, he re- delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, look, I've already talked about this in my end time series. So I highly encourage you to go and watch that series if you haven't. Because this, is, this set of verses in 1 Corinthians 15 is proof that there's no millennial kingdom in the future. The millennial kingdom is now. Proof and positive is that when he returns, he delivers the kingdom back to the Father. What, is, what does all that mean? Well, first off, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. How is death destroyed? It's destroyed through the resurrection. When Jesus returns, those who died in Christ will be resurrected. Those who are left alive from all the mark of the beast persecution will be gathered with those who are resurrected, Everybody's going to be transformed, and you'll meet Jesus in the air. That's the supernatural event happening, part of other things that are happening. But nonetheless, that happens at the end, and death is destroyed, meaning there is no more kingdom if death is destroyed. There's no millennial kingdom. So what's happening? Well, Jesus is returning to the earth to give justice to this Antichrist system, to finally destroy it to redeem those who are waiting for him and those who have died, and to usher in eternity, to bring in new Jerusalem, to redeem creation, to create all things new. Behold, I make all things new. And to basically rule on earth. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God is coming to be with man, not the other way around. We're not going to heaven. We're not going into the clouds. Now, we may go up in the air in the clouds, but we're not going into heaven God is coming down with us. This is the whole point of the Bible is that God is going to be on earth, which is a profound thought. But God is a triune being. So now we come back to this whole point, which is that God is a triune being. Jesus is returning as the person. Jesus' body has been around since the incarnation. But God, as a triune being, will rule through Jesus' body. 
Yahweh is one being. Yahweh will have a body. Yahweh has a body through Jesus Christ. And when he returns, Yahweh, as a triune being, will rule through that body forever and ever. And we will be in the presence physically of the physical body of Yahweh as a triune being forever and ever. That's what it means when it says God will be all in all. And so this whole idea of he himself will be subjected, it just is referring to the triune God ruling within the body of Jesus. It doesn't mean, because otherwise, if you read it literally, here's another problem with this. In fact, that I didn't even outline. If you read these, if, if you read this literally, he's not currently subjected. Do you see how this is actually a proof against eternal subordination? He's not currently subjected because the end will come and then he's going to be subjected under who put all things under subjection. So this is a future thing that's happening with subjection. So it's not proof of eternal subordination. So then what does that mean? That means once eternity comes, Jesus, the eternal son of God, who was always the same identity, is now going to be subordinate to the father for eternity. There's going to be some change in the father's or the God's economy and ontology with eternity. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. Deuteronomy says that God does not change. Or I, should, I think it's Numbers. Numbers 23, 19. God does not change. He is not like man to change his mind. He's not fickle. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't change. He doesn't do one thing and say, oh, you know, let me, oh, I probably should have done it differently. God doesn't change. So why at the end of time would there be such a significant change in the Godhead? Makes zero sense. But you know what does make sense is that the triune being which is Yahweh, will rule through the body, the physical body of Jesus. It's the glorified body. And God will be all in all. So that makes sense perfectly. When you have a family, okay, that the child is supposed to be subordinate to the parents. The wife is supposed to be subordinate to the husband. The husband is supposed to be subordinate to Christ. Now, within this arrangement, which is the biblical understanding of a family, the wife being subordinate to the husband does not make the wife any less of a human being. Doesn't make her any less member of the family. Same with the kids. The children being subordinate to the parents doesn't make them any less of a human being, any less valuable. Their ontology does not change. So remember that when it says he himself will be subjected, meaning the body of Jesus, which is the body of the second person of the Trinity, will be inhabited by, I guess for a lack of a better word, by Yahweh as a triune being, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what subjection is talking about here. It's in the context of the final revelation of God in full glory. When you had the incarnation, it was just the second person, the Trinity, that had chosen to humble himself. The Father's not going to humble himself. It's the Son that had to humble himself to accept the gift and to redeem these people. But when he, when Jesus returns in his physical body, he's going to be in his glorified form. That's going to be the presence of God, the physical manifestation of God on earth. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will all 
dwell in the body of Jesus. This is what it means when it's when it's talking about subjection. It's not talking about a change in ontology. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always a one will together that they choose and that they're in alignment with one another. Very important. So it's a statement of economy. Once again, all these things that we're looking at, they're statements of economy. God is going to be aligning himself perfectly in the body of Christ at the end of time. And that's something to marvel at. It's not a statement that Jesus is going to be made subordinate. Why would it be a future subordination anyway? So again, you can't use it for either arguing that he's eternally subordinate or that he's going to become subordinate. It doesn't make any sense. Neither makes sense with this. So as usual, we have to read things in context. Now, this next one is the rich young man that approaches Jesus. And it's a very interesting interchange, actually. This is in Matthew 17 through 18. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So some people have taken this to mean that you see, there you go. That's proof that Jesus is not God because he's basically saying, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. Very, very important. Well, first we have to understand things in context. Jesus is not saying, I'm not good. Because in fact, in John 10 verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. This is a reference to an Old Testament prophecy of the good shepherd in Ezekiel. And if you read that prophecy, there's, it's very clear that this person is more than just a human being. The Jews expected a divine Messiah. We went into that into the Son of God episode, the Son of Man episode. Very clearly so. Today's Jews, with their understanding of the Messiah, is completely detached from the Old Testament. It's a completely different understanding. But anyway, that's a whole other can of worms. There are two ways to understand this statement. And I think they both kind of apply. The first, again, is Jesus is modeling. What's the purpose of the incarnation? Jesus is modeling the perfect human being, the way that God intended for us to exist. So he is giving glory to God and reminding that only God is good. So why do you call it, why are you calling another person, another human being, good? Why, why do you believe that there are good human beings is really the understatement. A lot of things that Christ says are very profound because of what he's saying through them, like read between the lines type of thing. Why are you calling me good when there are no good people on earth? Nobody does good. Not a single one. Nobody seeks after God. Those are Old Testament verses that the Jews knew. So why are you calling me good teacher? Only God is good. That is from a human understanding. But remember, Christ has two natures, human and divine. And so the other understanding, which I think is very interesting, you can let me know your thoughts on this, but I think this applies, which is there's another play on words here. The man didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And again, the Jews expected a divine conquering type of figure, a divine figure to be the Messiah. And the man basically calls him like, hey, good teacher, like you're just a teacher type of thing. 
And so Jesus says, you know, basically like, nobody's good except God. So do you realize who you're speaking with? Did you have like a Freudian slip kind of thing where basically you, do you realize that you're speaking to God? So do you wish to change your title for me as teacher other than, you know, instead of calling me teacher, calling me Messiah, you know, that kind of thing. Basically playing with the fact that he is the irony. There's a, That's the word I'm looking for. There's great irony in this situation in that he's calling him good teacher, which again, it applies as well. Even that phrase applies because good applies only to God. Only God is good. Jesus has a divine nature. Teacher can be human. That also applies to teacher. He is the teacher. He's the prime teacher. So he is actually the good teacher. But the guy who was wording this to him and asking him this and calling him good teacher did so out of great ignorance. First off, he's wanting to know what, what do I need to do to inherit, or inherit life, eternal life? So you're already approaching it from a workspace type of situation. But nonetheless, he called him good teacher out of his ignorance of the scriptures, both in the sense that only God is good and in another sense, realizing that the Messiah had to be divine. So you're ignorant of that. <laughs> you aren't seeing that what's in, right in front of you. So there's a very this is a very interesting situation, but again, it's not an argument against God against Jesus's divinity. Not one bit. Because Jesus is giving glory to God and teaching and showing an example. He's not saying I am not God. He's not saying I'm not divine through his actions. He's merely giving glory to God. And if you go with the second understanding, kind of like that ironic situation, the ironic undertones, I think that if anything, it's, he's kind of almost pointing to the fact that, hey, like you are talking to God. Nobody's good except God alone. So you called me good. Think about why you called me that. Something in your spirit recognized the truth. So there's an ironic component there, which again, if you agree with that, Jesus is also pointing to his divinity. So it's the very exact opposite of what people are using to argue. Okay, the next one is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, through a couple of them, because this is about head coverings, but there's a verse in here, verse 3 in chapter 11, that is about it seems, again, about subordination. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So does this mean that Christ is subordinate to the Father? What, what does this mean? How do we take it? Well, the first thing I want to encourage you to understand is that head, in this particular understanding, these, these, this interchange, this letter is not talking about authority necessarily, but source, the source of something. Earlier in Corinthians, in chapter in 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Jesus Christ and God are paralleled in the same verse, basically, as, as the 
source of all things and why we exist. He sustains the world by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 verse 3, which probably Paul wrote, but who knows. So he refers to Jesus very highly, not only here, but in other places. So this can't possibly mean that he's talking about some eternally subordinate situation. That's point number one. Point number two is that he refers to man as the source of woman later. This is in verses 7 through 8, chapter 11 again. For man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So the woman was made from the man. Of course, that's what Genesis tells us. tells us that the rib or the side or a part of Adam was used to basically craft the woman. So the woman was made from man. So the head of the woman is the man. That's the source. And of course, man was made from God, and God is the source of man. That all makes sense. Very consistent understanding. Now, I want you to remember a very important point as we proceed is that you cannot apply everything to God. Even when we say Trinity with three persons, a person, the word person is limited in understanding. It it can't apply fully to God because persons exist in time and space. God doesn't exist in time and space. There's many limitations that come with personhood that don't apply to God. But there are things in personhood, like a will, emotions, self-awareness. These things apply to God. And so very, very important that when we're dealing with these topics, that we understand that certain things just don't apply to God. So when we say the source of man is God, or the source of a woman is the man, when we say the source of Christ is the Father, that doesn't mean what you think it means in those other situations where the woman was physically made from the man and the the um, the man was physically made by God from the dust of the earth. Sure, that's consistent, but those are shadows and types. Remember, everything in this physical world is a shadow and type of the ultimate reality, which is God. And so we have to understand things with a grain of salt because when we look at the ultimate truth, things are much more sublime and profound. Jesus is from God, meaning his phys- the physical incarnation, the, the origin of that physical incarnation is from God. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's womb. He was born sinless. He's from God. He's the chosen Lamb of God. But the second person of the Trinity, the Son, the eternal Son, was always around. He became Yeshua, the person. Yeshua, the person, did not exist before 3 BC. Yeshua, the person, was born physically. But the Son, the eternal Son, has always existed. And again, this is the mystery of, of the incarnation. Christ has two natures, one person, both man, fully man, and fully God. Both Jesus and the apostles labored, and we looked at this over and over again in previous episodes. They labored to emphasize that Jesus was from God so that people would understand his authority, his veracity, his truth, 
that he's true, that he's he's authentic, let's put it that way. But at the same time, they also labored to make the point that he was also God. John 1 is probably the best example. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do you make sense of that unless you have a trinity? The Word was with God. Eternal Son of God was always around, always around with the Father from eternity past. And the Word was God. So he's from God, but also he is God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just another messenger. He's not just another anybody. He is God. And he's also from God. These two things, for some people, are incredibly hard to reconcile. They feel like you have to choose one or the other. And that's the problem with all these theories. That you, the people are not accepting the mystery that God has presented through the incarnation. So when... So now back to the original point when Paul says the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. What does he mean here? Does he mean that Christ is subordinate to the Father? No, he's talking about the source. This entire thing is about sources. The verses that are talking about the source of woman from man and the man from God is talking about your source, like where are you from? So you have the same ontology. The woman is made from man, but she's... She's a human being. She's not any less of a human being. Christ, Jesus, Yeshua, was from God. But he also is God. It's talking about Jesus' source as an authentic... It's authenticating Jesus' source, Yeshua's source, the person Yeshua, as being from God. But Jesus is also, again, the incarnate Son of God who is always around, eternal, eternity past. And this is the mystery of an incarnation that we have to understand. Otherwise, we will really stumble over some serious things. Now, another one is John 17, verse 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh-oh. Does this mean that Jesus is not God because there's only one true God? So Jesus must be different. Again, be careful how you interpret things. Always read things in context. So let's read it in context. This is the high priestly prayer. Famous prayer by Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, temporary assignment. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. People do not read this verse when they quote 17 verse 3. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Again, this is a Trinitarian view of the gospel. The Father gave people to Christ. The Christ redeemed them, manifested the name of God to them, and basically saved them. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Again, authenticating Jesus' source 
as God and from God. For I have given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Again, it's all about, we just mentioned this point, that Jesus labored, and so did the apostles too, Make sure that you understand he's authentic, that he is from God. He's genuinely from God. Not in a prophetic sense, like an anointed prophet, but from God. And he also is God. It's again, it's this dynamic duality of human and God, which is the incarnation. If you drop that, you run into serious error and you abandon the gospel. You abandon the gospel because you can't have a gospel if Jesus doesn't have two natures. You really can't for many reasons, and we looked at that before. But when he's when he's talking about this again, it's pointing to the duality between there's the person of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, who was born physically and began to exist physically. But the eternal Son of God was not created. In fact, Jesus clearly says, glorify me with the glory that I had with you, with you before the world existed. Meaning he existed before the world was created, therefore he's not created. Do you see what this is drilling at? And the glory that he had before means that he chose to let go of this glory willfully and set it to the side temporarily for the mission to be accomplished, and it got accomplished. So other places to remember, like in John 10, verse 30, where he says, I and the Father are one. Again, context. This is impossible if you are reading just this verse, um, John 17, verse 3, as, well, there's the one true God and there's Jesus, so Jesus must be different in divinity. No, there's the one true God, which is Yahweh. Yahweh is tripersonal. Yahweh has a incarnation through the second person of Yahweh named Jesus or Yeshua. Very complex and yet profound thing to commit to study, to meditation, to memory. Because without it, you will drift into grave error. Like so many people are drifting today. It's very sad. Because again, what is what is the cost? The cost is the gospel. You're going to drift into a works-based religion if you reject the divinity of Christ and the Trinity, which is the only explanation. It's the only way to reconcile these two. The Son, Jesus, who was incarnate, came to testify of Yahweh, and he took human form and was subordinate to the Father to accomplish this purpose. There is only one true God, which is true, Yahweh, but Yahweh is tripersonal. So when you're reading these things, if you don't have that understanding, again, contextual clues and context other places, if Jesus was different from the Father, why did he say earlier, I and the Father are one? And in some other places where, again, he claimed to be God, he was accused of blasphemy, He in Revelation he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, only Yahweh speaks like that in the Old Testament. You have a lot of problems with that if you reject the Trinity. Now we have one more, I believe, and that's Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which is a very popular one. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And of course, people say, you see, this is proof that you are idolizing, you're an idolater if you believe that Jesus is God. Well, not so fast, Jack, because how these things are translated can also affect your understanding. First off, the word for one is echad, and we've talked about this in other episodes, but echad is a word that denotes complex unity. For example, in Matthew 10, verse 18, oops, it's actually Matthew 19, verse 5, and he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Same word. This is a word that denotes complex unity. When, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, same thing, complex unity. In John 17, verse 20 through 21, he says, I do not, again, this is a high priestly prayer we're just looking at. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, it's about Jesus' authenticity and legitimacy. But if you're just reading verse 5 of this, going back to the previous point we made, where he says, oh, uh, actually verse 3, sorry, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Oh, you see, therefore, Jesus must be subordinate. Well, wait a minute. Later in verse 21, he says that I, that you are in me, Father, and I am in you. How can a created being be in the Father? Do you realize how silly that is? If you believe that Jesus is created, then you have to interpret this verse, that the Father has a relationship like that with a created being. There is no way, no way possible, no way a created being would be before eternity glorified with the Father. No way. But anyway, these things are talking about one as in complex unity. Is he saying the one person? No, one mind, one attitude, one heart, one will together. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, one body with many members. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. One is being used as a, as a term of complex unity, not literally one. Very, very important. And so we, we have this, this point to make that, okay, our God is one. What does that mean? Does it mean there's only one God, meaning one person? Or one being? Because Yahweh is one being. Yeah, absolutely. And Yahweh is tripersonal. So one is of one mind. And the word that is used is echad. It's, it's a complex unity. Two shall become one flesh. Echad flesh. Does that mean you're fused to your wife after you sleep with each other for the first time? No. It means you have an intimate connection. You are of one mind. You have one sense about you. Obviously, <laughs> nobody would interpret it in, literal, in a literal way. So you have to take that understanding into this verse. Now, another important thing is translation can determine the meaning. In the Rotterdam 1902 Bible, which I'm going to pull up in just a second, um, this is actually called the Emphasized Bible, and it's got an interesting translation, but I want to read you a little bit about it. The Emphasized Bible. Joseph Bryant Rotherdam's uh, emphasized Bible, abbreviated EBR, is a translation of the Bible which uses various methods such as emphatic idiom. 
and special diacritical marks to bring out nuances of the underlying Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic texts. Rotherdam was a Bible scholar and minister of the Churches of Christ, who described his goal as placing the reader of the present time in as good of a position as that occupied by the reader of the first century for understanding the apostolic writing. So the goal of this translation is to be linguistically very accurate, especially when it comes to idioms and certain things that are hard to translate. So let's read what he translated this verse as. This is the Rotterdam Bible, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Very interesting and very different translation. What is this verse about? Well, yeah, Yahweh is our God. He's the, no, not only is he the only God, but he's our God. Yahweh alone is our God. Well, okay. That doesn't conflict with the Trinity because Yahweh is tripersonal. The angel of Yahweh and Yahweh in the Old Testament. He also had the spirit of Yahweh, which in the New Testament is revealed as the Holy Spirit with a will and that commands and speaks and has self-awareness and can be blasphemed. All these things are revealed in the New Testament. Yahweh is tripersonal. Very, very important. So context, as always, is the word of the day. It is what determines the meaning and the word that is used for one in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 is complex. It's a complex term. It doesn't mean literally one. Our God is literally one. Well, okay. Even if that's your understanding, what do you mean by one? Do you mean by one being? Yeah. God is one being. There are not multiple gods. It's only one God. But that doesn't conflict with the Trinity either. The Trinity says that there is one God. That God is tripersonal. Very, very important. So there is an objection now I want to tackle really quick, which is this whole idea of kenosis or emptying, that Jesus basically emptied himself, and so during the incarnation, he wasn't divine. This comes from Philippians 2, verse 7. He says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the argument is, well, you see, Jesus wasn't divine during his incarnation. So there's a lot of flavors and teachings and theologies that come up around Jesus' divinity and incarnation, and one of them is that while he was incarnate, at least, he had to be, you know, he was emptied of his divinity, didn't have any power. And that's how we explain all these verses where he's subordinate to the Father. I can do nothing on my own. Well, you see, that's because he emptied his divinity. He wasn't actually God. I want to remind you that that is a heresy, that for the last almost 2,000 years, the church has believed and taught that Jesus is God. And if you reject his divinity you are basically running into heresy town and creating all sorts of nonsense in your head. But remember that Christ has to have two natures to fulfill the atonement. He has to be God to forgive sins and to be of infinite value in the propitiation. And he has to be man to have the likeness of sin so that sin can be punished in the flesh. Any both. You can't have one or the other. If he's only God, then you know, you, there's no sin, sinful flesh that needs to be punished. Of course, Jesus was sinless, but he was in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he was innocent. So this is the mystery of an incarnation. It's the work of God to do such a thing. And though we are, 
probably unable to fully grasp such a thing. Of course we're not. It's a mystery. Doesn't mean that it's not true. It's there for you to marvel at for the rest of your eternal existence with Christ. But again, context is your friend. So we got to read the whole of Philippians from 5 all the way through 11. Let's see. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, remember that, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because now therefore is a linking word. What does that mean? You got to look at everything that came before. Because Jesus had a, an example of humility, where he didn't count equality with God to be grasped during his incarnation, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. How is that possible with a created being? So that, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is a reference to so many things. Psalm 88, I believe, we looked at that, that the Son of Man would be worshipped in Daniel 7. You don't bow to any created being, man. You, you can only bow to God, but how do you explain that? Well, you explain it with the Trinity. In heaven and on earth and under the, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we make sense of that? Well, you had an incarnational subordination where Jesus willfully chose to be a humble servant and he put his glory, the glory of the Son of God, he put it to the side for the sake of the name of God and for the sake of you and I who are being saved and conformed to the image of Christ. He put it all to the side. But that doesn't mean he emptied his divinity. This is part of the incarnation. This is a fundamental part of the understanding. There were many church heresies that denied Jesus' godhood, and they are still alive and well today. Christ emptied his glory, not his godhood. Because again, <laughs> though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God. He is God. But he chose to put that glory, because if he would appear as God in the physical universe, like the angel of the Lord, like he will appear when he returns. I mean, it's unmistakable, right? I mean, you, you would have earthquakes and fire and all kinds of supernatural things if God would appear in his full glory. So he chose to hide himself, to put that to the side. He, he hid himself in a form that you could only recognize through humility yourself, because those who expected a conquering king to come and get rid of the Romans stumbled over the fact that God came as a humble servant. And they still do today. The people, the Jews still stumble over that today. Can't get over it. How can we, the Jews who are God's chosen people, you know, how can we just be humiliated and humbled like that? No way. It's a pride issue. But you see, this is the genius of God. He came as a humble servant so that we would relate to him as humble servants. It's profound, really. But he put aside his glory, not his godhood. We just read John 17, 5, where Jesus says, glorify me with the glory that I had before you, with you before the world existed. 
What does that mean? That means that he was always glorious. He put that to the side as a temporary thing, and he got glorified again once he ascended. He ascended and he fulfilled Daniel 7, where the Son of Man presents himself before the Ancient of Days, receives all glory and dominion and power, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth? Are you kidding me? No created being would receive such an honor. God is not inconsistent. God tells you that you cannot bow to any other God besides him. And yet you have to bow to Jesus every knee on heaven and earth. Well, how do you make sense of that? You only make sense of it by taking the Bible's testimony that Jesus is God and the Father is God. Well, I guess God must be multipersonal. That's the only way to explain it. It really is. We know again from John 1 that the Word was God, the Word was with God. In John 1, 14, the Son is the Word who tabernacled with us. Again, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a picture of Christ. On the outside, it had like badger skin and goat skin, not very attractive. But on the inside, it had all the precious preciousness of God. The Ark of the Covenant, it had... Uh, the table of showbread, the incense, the prayers, all these things pointed to the duality that you would have in Christ, which is human on the outside, humble servant, not much to look at is what Isaiah says, and yet on the inside you had the living God. Profound, just profound. But the word for tabernacle, for dwelt among us in John 1.14 is tabernacled. And of course that points back to or I should say the tabernacle of the Old Testament points forward to the incarnation. But if Jesus wasn't God and he's only human, then you have a real problem with the atonement. We've talked about this over and over again. Jesus has to be God in order to, for his infinitely valuable blood as God to be eternally propitiating for you. A created being cannot atone for all people for all time. It's not possible. God has a, has, a, has a tier of value for created things. Bulls are worth more than pigeons in the sacrificial system. And of course, you need a sacrifice to approach God. But if you're going to live forever, and you're going to be forever in God's presence, you need an infinitely valuable sacrifice. Do you see how important this is? and why Jesus has to be God, so that his blood is eternally valuable, and as a result, pay and give you eternal life forever, eternally satisfying, once, once, one and done, once for all. Very, very important that he has to have two natures. You can't get around that. Now, another objection, we'll tackle this really quick, is what about Jesus' death? If Jesus died, how can the second person of the Trinity die? How can the second person of the Trinity die? Well, again, my immediate response is that people who argue this do not understand the nature of the incarnation. The real question is not, how can the second person of the Trinity die? The real question is, how was Jesus both God and human at the same time? You have to marvel at that. And when you really understand that, you see that what was really going on is that, first off, God is spirit. That's what the Bible says. 
And he has to be worshipped in spirit and truth. So God is spirit. As a being, he is spirit. And that spirit is tri-personal. The Son, the eternal Son, is spirit, but became flesh for all the things that we discussed today, for propitiation, to vindicate the glory of God, to make us brothers with him, to, to serve as a model. All these things were part of the incarnation, of the purpose of the incarnation. But how did the incarnation work? Some people say that, well, the Logos is the mind. And so, you know, Jesus, as the Son of God, the eternal God, was in the mind of Yeshua. But that that doesn't make sense, because then the mind is dependent upon the brain. If you don't have a brain, if you're dead, you don't have a mind anymore. So does that mean that the eternal Son of God was dead for three days? No. Yeshua, the physical person, died. The eternal Son of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit in the Bible, it says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ. So again, how do you make sense of that without a trinity, where these realities are superimposed on one another? So when you have the incarnation, the the overlaying, again, it's hard to use words to really describe this, but you had the overlaying of the Spirit, which is the divine nature, with a physical nature. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was like inhabited or, you know, like how we would understand possession or anything like that. It was a full integration of spirit and flesh, unique to Christ. The incarnation is unique to Christ. No other, like when you hear end times, people saying, oh, you know, the antichrist is going to be personally, you know, indwelt by Satan. Like, what is that? I mean, people can be possessed, but that's not like the incarnation. The incarnation is very, very different. But if you understand the incarnation, you understand there's a divine nature, which is spirit. That nature doesn't die. And there was flesh. The flesh died. Jesus as a person died. Jesus, Yeshua, experienced death. Now, how does that work in his unique case where the Son of God is an eternal spirit, cannot be destroyed, and the body dies? Who knows? That's not something that we can understand. But this is nonetheless something to marvel at, because ultimately, the mystery of the Incarnation means also that it's a mystery of death. Do you see how this ties into it? We don't understand how Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, as the Eternal Son, can experience death. He experienced death through the body of Christ, who died. Jesus, Yeshua died. But the eternal Son, the Spirit, the eternal Son of God, cannot die. He's, he's God. He's the living God. And so this is a mystery, too. And ultimately, it doesn't... You're probably not going to solve it. <laughs> not for eternity. You know, it's not about solving it. It's about marveling at it. But again, this is what the Bible forces you into. This is the mystery of the Incarnation, the mystery of the Trinity. These are mysteries designed for you to marvel at. Because if you could understand them it'd be very easy to get arrogant and to put God into a box and say, oh yeah, okay, well, that's how it works. No, you can't put God into a box. He has confounded you with these things so that you marvel. You cannot possibly understand the nature of God. We can marvel at it. So, final thoughts, wrapping this up. Eternal subordination versus earthly subordination. You know which one is true. 
earthly subordination is true. Subordination was a temporary thing that Jesus did to accomplish the goals of the mission on earth. So we should not confuse one for the other. Very, very important. Because again, if you make a confusion between economy and ontology, you create a lot of problems. Very much so. If Christ was eternally subordinate, then that means that his ontology, meaning his nature, would change. And there are people who say, well, Christ is divine, but he's kind of less divine than the Father. There's some, you know, Christ, the Father is almighty God, so Christ is a little less than that, but he's still divine. Like, where do you get that from? You don't get that from the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus is God. 2 Peter 1 verse 1, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In the Greek, you apply the Granville Sharp rule, those two nouns are attributed to the same person. God and Savior are attributed to the same person. The apostles believed Jesus was God. Jesus said that he was God. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And he also was accused of blasphemy, of making himself equal to God. You can't get around these things. So Jesus is equal with God. And when we confuse these statements of his earthly life, which he chose to put aside his glory, and we say, well, he must have a different nature than the Father because, you know, X, Y, Z. You're making a grave error. You're not reading context. You're not, <clears throat> you're not accepting the mystery of the incarnation, which is revealed in Christ. And you're not accepting the revelation of the entire scriptures, which again, we'll, we'll jump into the Old Testament probably starting next week. But like I said, it's been around since the very since Genesis. Let us make man in our image, plural. Make is singular, our is plural. How do you, he's not talking to the angels, because the angels, they're not in the image of God. Let us make man in our image. So important. But this, you know, like in George Orwell, there's a quote that probably you know if you've read Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Very famous quote. And it's a funny quote because we understand what's actually going on here. Like, okay, some are more equal than others, i.e., you know, socialism, communism, you know, it's all about equality. But in the end, like some people are more equal than others, if you get the understanding. Well, it's the same with this. And you can apply the same, same logic to people arguing eternal subordination. Oh, Jesus is divine. He's just eternally subordinate to the Father. Well, which one is it? If Jesus is God, he's equal with God, which is what the Bible teaches. Jesus cannot be eternally subordinate to God from eternity past and eternity future and also be equal with God. It, it, you can't fit the two in the same thing. He can have a temporary subordination. That makes sense because it was a temporary thing to accomplish a purpose, and it's consistent with everything we've read. But eternal subordination changes his ontology. It, it defines his eternal identity as the Son. And this is, we're, we're dealing with the identity of God that has been revealed to us, so we have to be very careful. Remember his own words that we looked at in all the episodes in the past. We remember the words of the apostles, what they wrote about him, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and Jesus has to be God in human form with two natures for the atonement to work, for the gospel to work. 
this is the only conclusion. And so if you've had trouble with this, I hope today has given you <laughs> some edification. I hope it's given you some tools to combat all of the lies out there on these things because so many people are taking things, again, out of context. Word of the day is context. It always will. Always will be. Every day will be context. What is the context? And the context of everything that Jesus said is that he is God who chose willingly to humble himself for your sake, for my sake, and of course, first and foremost, for the name of God to be vindicated from all the times that he was merciful. Jesus chose to do that. Imagine, imagine such a choice. You're literally, you know, in full glory and perfection, and you give that up to be a homeless person, basically, and to be ridiculed and to be, you know, you know, tortured and punished for something that you didn't do. And you also have the ability to destroy everybody immediately and you abstain from that. It's really profound. That is such a profound thing that we'll just marvel at for the rest of eternity. But you won't be able to do that if you believe that Jesus is a created being, which is sad. And at the at the worst, you are potentially drifting away from the gospel and teaching or learning another gospel that can't save you. The gospel of the anti-Trinitarians cannot save you. The Unitarians cannot save you. The Binitarians, all these heresies we're going to be looking at, they can't save you. The gospel is that Jesus, which is the eternal son, became flesh. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Such beautiful words. It really, they are, and they're something to marvel at. So I hope that this has been helpful for you. I hope it's edified you. Certainly these things can be pretty challenging if you haven't studied quite a bit, because a lot of people who promote them are very convincing. But I hope you have a little more tools to combat those things. Next time we'll be looking at the Old Testament, Jesus in the Old Testament, so we're going to be starting kind of a different direction and looking backward in time at all these things and how they foreshadowed the revelation in Christ. So until next time, take it easy, stay healthy, and God bless. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.